Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. All right, thank you, worship team, for that, for serving us with that. It was great. Good to be into the presence of Jesus, praising Him. Thanks for the call to worship too, John. And um, looking forward to this morning as we look into a really beautiful story. My name is Derek Hebert. My family and I have been part of Rev for a little while. And uh, we're part of a gospel community out in Southwest Boise. I'm one of the teachers here that gets to um, serve through teaching occasionally. So very thankful to be here this morning. Um, well, one week out from Easter. How's everyone feeling? All right. <laughs> Woo! All right. Where's Kyle? I need Kyle. There you go. Good. Yeah. Bring it. Bring it the whole morning. Um, so, yes, one week out from Easter, uh, whether you celebrated it or not in some way, whether you're able to attend a service or spend time with family, you know, it's a good reminder that Easter, at least as in terms of the Christian truth of it and the Christian tradition, is about resurrection. It's about new life. Because that's what resurrection is. And, it's, and in that new life is change and transformation. It's a transition from death to life, from darkness to light, from old to new. And so we're going to talk about change today a little bit, about life change. And um, one of the ways that this life change works in the Christian life, in Christianity. You know, life change isn't just a Christian thing. Uh, it's our, our culture believes in a change of life. It's why we have the self-help industry um, and plenty of books and content out there on that. Life coaches, fitness gurus, health, all of that. We're all, we, we all fundamentally, we all deep down, we know that there's something that needs to change about us, right? We can't get away from that. Um, <clears throat> it's why we make New Year's resolutions that last for about 30 days if we're if we're lucky. So it's life change is not just a Christian thing. We see it all the time in our culture. And I, and I thought that what would be fun this morning is, is to uh, look at some, some good, some good old self-help inspirational quotes. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to need your help this morning. You're going to help me rate the inspirational quote. Okay. And um, my apologies up front. If you happen to have this quote hanging on your office wall, Um, no offense, it's not personal. We're just going to have some fun with it. So on a scale of one to three, as we look at each quote, on a scale of one to three, one being thumbs up, two being mm, meh, and three being thumbs down, you guys let me know, okay? Just put a thumbs up, thumbs this way, or thumbs down, okay? Here's the first quote. Let's do this. You are not your yesterday. You are what you make of your todays. Mistakes will happen. Don't let that discourage your future. Use your broken thing to make unbroken wings then fly. <laughs> what do we think? Okay, we got some thumbs down. We got <laughs> thumbs down. Okay. Oh, we got a thumbs up. Thank you, Bree. Appreciate that. Bree's going to be, Bree's like, I love inspirational quotes. <laughs> it's nothing more inspiring than flying, right? Okay. Um, <clears throat> I had to use that, by the way. It's from Napoleon Dynamite. So, um, all right. Next quote. Next quote. There comes a point when you have to realize that you'll never be good enough for some people. The question is, is that your problem or theirs? (laughs) 
Lance, thank you for that thumbs up. Although I have to say, can you imagine you're doing your six-month eval with your supervisor, and you're like, this is all your problem. It's not mine. Sorry, you're going to have to deal with that. All right, so maybe that was mostly thumbs down. Here's the last one. This is my favorite. For a star to be born, there is one thing that must happen. A gaseous nebula must collapse. So collapse, crumble. This is not your destruction. This is your birth. Just crumble. Just collapse. Collapse to the ground. Get it over with. <laughs> Be reborn after your gaseous nebula. So um, anyway, this, this, is, this is kind of fun. But self-help quotes. So culture wants to change. Culture seeks change. We realize there's something wrong, undesirable about life and how we feel about it. And so, friends, pursuing life change is, is, a, is a good thing. It is a good thing. And there's a gazillion ways to find it in the culture. But my question is, does that change, whatever it is, does that change last? Does it transform you in such a way that your whole life is permeated with change? Does the change reach deep enough to produce transformation in every aspect of your life? The main question I want us to tackle here is how do we find real, lasting change in our lives? And this book, the Bible, the story of the Bible, has a, actually has a good answer to that. And part of that answer is called repentance. And real briefly, repentance is basically is you are going one way in life and you decide to do a 180, you turn around and you go the other direction. You have a change of mind and heart, all right, about who you are, about who God is, about life in general. That's what repentance is. Repentance is a first-time decision that you make in order to become a Christian. That's how, if you're a Christian, you became a Christian by believing the good news of Jesus and realizing that you're a sinner, that you needed a life change. You need to change. You need to repent of that sin and turn towards Jesus. It's a first-time decision to enter into the kingdom of God, but it's also an ongoing action in your life as a disciple. So repentance happens once, first time, but it also happens ongoing. So what we're going to look at this morning is three things. What often keeps us from repenting? What are the barriers? What empowers us to repent? What helps us to repent? And then what happens when we do repent? Okay? So what keeps us from repenting? What empowers us to repent? And what happens when we do repent? So we're going to look in this story here in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. If you have your Bible, uh, open it to that, Luke chapter 7. And I'll just give you a little caveat up front. The word repentance is actually not found in this story, but the reality is still there. The concept is there. So that's why we're going we're gonna to look at repentance as the way towards life change. All right, so I'm going to read this story, and then we'll get into it. Starting in verse 36, Luke 7. This is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. One of the Pharisees asked, asked him, that's Jesus, asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 
When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the, the, uh, the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So the first thing we're going to look at here is what keeps us from repenting. And that is, is that we often see our sin as only skin deep. Okay, here's what I mean by that. Simon the Pharisee is looking at his sin only on the outside. He sees it only as wrong behavior. He sees it only as immoral behavior. It is sin, but that's all he sees it as. He doesn't see it on the inside. Look at what happens here when the woman comes in and starts performing this act on Jesus. And Simon says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is teaching him or is, who is touching him for she is a sinner. So a little bit about Simon. He's part of this group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a first century Jewish fundamentalist group who were adhering to strict, very technical obedience to the law. And they believed that in order to, as they did that, that was a way for them to, one, stay in the covenant, and two, hopefully bring the Messiah uh, to come sooner. The Messiah that they were hoping for that would take over Rome and, you know, set up Israel for what they thought was truly meant to be. But it really boiled down to this strict, very um, technical obedience, very tedious, very specific obedience to the law, and especially the immoral laws. I mean, those were like the heavy hitters. Right. And so the laws of like stealing, killing, lying, sex outside of marriage, all these these were all physical actions. And so that was good. I mean, even Jesus and Paul and the apostles, they upheld the law. They saw something that was good in it. The Old Testament law that was given. But the problem was, is there was this tendency to only focus on the behavioral, the external behavior, the the moral aspects of the law, and, uh, and that's all that they would focus on. Like, we must just keep that in order to stay in the covenant. And, and therefore, the need to correct those actions in order to be in right standing with God to stay in the covenant. And that problem goes as far back as the Old Testament. So that was Simon the Pharisee. That's his focus. Now, the woman who is not named here in the story, and that's intentional, because she was um, put into this category of, of sinner. And typically, a, a first century Jew or the religious leaders, they had this category for those who um, probably in some way um, who, uh, you know, broke uh, the law, the moral laws especially, and they were most likely a Gentile. They were not a Jew by birth. So she's not named. She's stereotyped into this social category of sinner, okay? So Simon is looking at sin only on the outside. And here's the thing. I think in our culture, especially whether you're a Christian or not, we often default to that, that way of thinking about sin, that way of thinking about behavior. Um, we, as, if you're not a Christian, maybe you, in growing up in this culture, 
you have this idea or this story about human life that we're evolved creatures who merely struggle with behavioral problems. And these behavior problems just need adjustments. They just need redirects. They need corrections. So just change that behavior and you've changed the person. Do you see how that goes? So we're just evolved creatures. This is what the culture generally believes here in America and in the West. Um, if, they're not, if they're not Christian or if they're not religious in some way. And that we'll just have this external view of the person that all that matters is their actions. We just need to change the actions and we can change the human being. Which sounds like a really good way to fix the world um, and to fix someone, except that here we are thousands of years later and we have yet more problems than we can possibly imagine, right? So I, I don't think that this, just this outside view of a human being, this external, what they only do in life and just fix that, is the way to uh, fix things, is the way to get things done. Because the biblical view of sin goes deeper than the surface. It's greater than skin deep. In 1 Samuel 16, when God sends Samuel to go and look for a new king of Israel because Saul is just failing like crazy, um, he sends Samuel to this family that has all these brothers. And Samuel starts with the oldest, who is great in stature and height and physical appearance and all this. And Surely Samuel's like, oh, surely it's this guy because Saul was great in appearance and physical height. And God's like, nope. And Samuel goes right on down the line. And God's like, nope, 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 nope. Till he gets to the youngest son. You guys, some of you guys know the story with King David, how David eventually became king. And David's the smallest. He's the youngest. And, God's, and God says this. He's like, he says, um, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. He's speaking of the other brothers. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Why does God look at the heart? Because in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So here's the deal. Sin, wrongdoing, first begins in the heart. It begins inside you. It's not something that just happens outside of you as just an action. It first begins inside of you. This goes all the way back to the beginning of, of the Garden of Eden, what it means to be made in the image of God. Adam and Eve first distrusted God. They struggled with, they wrestled with unbelief. They committed unbelief in the Creator, and they chose something other than God to put their hope and trust and dependence in. So they committed both unbelief and idolatry. So sin, we have to realize, first happens fundamentally inside someone based on their beliefs, what they choose to believe in, what they choose to stake their life in. And it's rooted in unbelief and idolatry. Sin, at its heart, begins in the heart. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Every one of us in this room is that. Every one of us in this, in this room fundamentally has that problem. See, the beauty of the biblical worldview is it offers the most comprehensive, holistic, and authentic view of what it means to be human. Both in, that we're both internal and external creatures. We both have an inside and an outside that's made in the image of God that have hearts that's inside-outside reality. Simon doesn't see that. Simon the Pharisee doesn't see it. He only sees the outside part. He doesn't realize that sin first happens within. And in that case, he's as much part of the problem as the woman, right? 
So Jesus then shows us, shows Simon, and he shows us that our sin goes deeper than the surface, both on the outside and the inside. And he helps Simon to see two issues about his sin. One, that of the shallowness of his sin, the shallow view that he has of his own sin. And then two, the self-righteousness or the, the moral and spiritual superiority that Simon feels. Look at what Jesus does here in uh, the story. He tells this little parable, sort of a story within a story. He says, um, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? So I'm going to get into this parable a little bit more in my next point, but I just mentioned this because this is one of the ways that Jesus helps Simon to see the, to see the depth of his own sin. Part of the point of Jesus' parable is to show Simon uh, that his sin is actually a debt uh, that he owes against the one true God, to the one true God. So in this, it's really interesting here because what's going on is that um, <clears throat> uh, um, Jesus, in explaining sin as debt to Simon, he wants Simon to see that, like, actually, you, you think that you're the one who owns the small debt to the moneylender. You think that you're, you're the one who just has minimal sin, who has this little pile of sins compared to this woman who has this great pile of sins and this, this great uh, debt that she owes to God or to the, to the moneylender, to God. And, um, you, and, and you actually are actually more like this woman. You have just as large of a debt of sin as this woman does. See, if Jesus told this merely to validate validate Simon's minimal sin and debt compared to the woman's, the, the whole parable would be pointless. Jesus ba- basically like patting Simon on the back, saying, good job, buddy. You don't have that much you need to be thankful for. You don't have that much you need to repent of. But in fact, it's just the opposite. Obviously, the woman's sin is the large debt, but Simon believes his sin is small compared to hers. And Simon's sin is not. It's the large debt. Now, here's, part, here's the other part of the equation here with Simon. See, Simon doesn't see his own sin of self-righteousness or spiritual pride. And Jesus would often have this test. I call it a litmus test. A litmus test is like a test that you do in science. It's an exam or examination that you do that you're looking for a single indicator of something. And so when Jesus would talk with uh, his fellow Jews or when he would talk with religious leaders or Pharisees, Part of what he would do is he would see what's at the heart of your own righteousness. It's good. I'm glad that you do all this great stuff. You're living morally. You're living up to the law. And you may be doing good and right things on the outside that are noticeable and observable, and that's great. But in that, do you compare yourself with other people who maybe aren't living the same way as you are or maybe aren't living up to the law as good as you? Do you size them up? Do you compare and contrast yourself with other people who do that? And in so doing, do you find that you come out on top? In so doing that comparison, do you find that you do believe that you're better than them? Do you believe that you're higher than them based on that comparison? Because if so, you're being self-righteous. And that's sin. That in itself is sin. That's pride. It's spiritual and religious pride. You see, if you go to the trouble to climb and hike a tall mountain, 
and you get to the, the peak of that mountain, where's the first place you're going to look when you get to the top? You're going to look out and you're going to look down. It's only natural. That's what you do. When I get to the top of a high mountain, I've gone to all that work and that trouble and I feel good about myself. I'm not looking up at more sky. I'm looking down <laughs> at what's below me. That's the view, right? It's only natural. You get to a high place and you think you've arrived. The only natural place because of our broken humanity is to look down. If in the way that you live morally and living up to the, Bi- the Bible's commands, which is a good thing, and it's something we're called to you, if that causes you to look down on others who don't live the same way that you do, to condemn them in some, in some way, to distance yourself in some way from them, then you have self-righteousness, and that's sin. And that's what Jesus is helping Simon to see here. Now, I want to mention a little implication of this because I think at least in our time, This is really significant, how we interact and love other sinful people and how much that matters. And I'm thinking specifically of the LGBTQ plus community. And there's an unfortunate stigma of how Christians are viewed as interacting with that community. That Christians are judgmental, that they're homophobic, that they hate gay people. And I say that because I've heard it. I say that because my kids hear it at school, and that greatly saddens me. And I wish that I could have conversations with those people to help them to see how Christians actually think about this and how Christians actually, from a biblical gospel perspective here, actually would interact with them. And I mention this specifically, too, because Disney is ramping up their own beliefs and stance on this in their movies. And so parents, if you're interacting with that with your kids, with Disney, you need to help them understand this. Okay? From a biblical worldview. Remember, sin at its heart begins in the heart. It begins with unbelief and idolatry with which every human being has committed. It begins on the inside and it moves toward the outside. The way that someone lives, the identity that they choose the sexual orientation that they choose or believe that they're born with is an expression of that fundamental sin beginning in the heart. The same goes for you. You were born into sin, just like them. You sinned at the heart and expressed that in some outward behavior, even if not in the same way as an LGBTQ plus person. Yet you're still a sinner. If you look down on, condemn, and intentionally distance yourself from someone who has a different lifestyle than you, whatever identity they choose or whatever they believe they were born with, you are sinning with self-righteousness. Why? Because your sexuality, your morality, your lifestyle, even if in line with the Bible, is not what gives you righteousness at all. Only Jesus' righteousness saves you. Your morality, your law-keeping, your own right living does not and cannot save you because fundamentally you've already committed the ultimate sin. Unbelief and idol worship. And you still carry it around with you. You still struggle with it even though you're saved by grace. You can disagree with someone's sexual lifestyle and identity and see them as sinful and yet still love them. Why? Because God greatly disagrees with your sin and still loves you. And because of that, you can disagree with your own sin in your own life and still love yourself. That's how you became a Christian. 
you disagreed fundamentally with what's going on in you and your own life in order to accept God's grace and forgiveness. And ongoing. That's why you have repentance. I disagree with my kids' sin and I still love them. (laughs) You can disagree with someone and still love them. You can disagree with their actions in life and their lifestyle and still love them because you yourself are a sinner. I know that might sound basic and fundamental, but I, I, we have to talk about that and we have to bring ourselves back to what saves us and what is our true righteousness. It's not our sexuality. It's not our morals. It's Jesus. And I want to say this too. Wherever you are in your sexuality and in, in that journey, whatever you're struggling with, God sees you. God knows you. He is with you. Whatever that is, and because of that, we want to, as a community, we want to know you. We want to listen with, to you. We want to walk with you in that as well. We want to be a community that you can belong to and that you feel safe in. So, what keeps us from repentance we don't see our sin for what it really is second what empowers us to repent God's costly forgiveness let's look again at Jesus's parable here a certain money lender had two debtors one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 when they could not pay he canceled the debt of both now which of them will love him more Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So what's going on here? So there's, there's, a, there's a guy who lent money to two other guys. One of those guys owed 500 denarii. A, a denarii is a, a, a day's wages is what you would make in a day, typically. Okay, 500 days of that, so about a year and a half. And then he lent money to another guy who only owed 50 days of wages, so about a month and a half. So you've got, you know, a year and a half debt, and then you've got like a month and a half debt, okay? And he cancels the debt of both when they could not pay. What Jesus is saying here is, first, that your sin is like debt owed to the creator of the universe. See, sin is not only breaking fidelity, trust, and relationship, with the creator, with the creator God, but it's taking life away from God. God gave you life, made you in his image. So choosing to live independently and away from God and apart from him is taking that life away from him instead of living independence on him and near him. Because the life that the creator gave you was meant to be forever, your sin in taking that life away and doing with it what you please creates an insurmountable eternal debt. God's forgiveness overcomes and cancels your impossible debt, the infinite cost that can never be repaid by you because it would take an eternity to pay off your debt of sin. That's how magnanimous, that's how deep, and that's how personal, and that's how uh, powerful your sin is against the living God. It's both breaking trust and relationship and taking life away that ultimately belongs to God. That's why Uh, Blood is needed for atonement throughout the Old Testament and ultimately in Jesus because life is in that blood. So it's life for life. You took your life away from me. God says you're going to have to do a sacrifice or accept Jesus as your sacrifice in place of that life. Now, 
Here's the thing. Some of us, all of us have probably taken on debt at one point or other in our life. I remember one time when early on in our family, we, um, we bought a minivan and we, um, we took out a loan with another family member who lent us some money interest-free, which is really kind of them. And about maybe four or five months into that loan, started paying it off, uh, they canceled the debt. Just amazing, you know. I'm, I'm very generous of them, very kind. We were super happy, super grateful that we didn't have to continue on and paying off that debt. But it wasn't an impossible debt. I mean, it was a car, you know, a few thousand dollars. Um, we would have paid it off, just chipped away at it each month, maybe take us about a year, year and a half, or something like that, right? It wasn't impossible. We have a mortgage, it's a pretty large loan. It's not an impossible loan, but it's pretty large. But, you know, with a mortgage, you, you get into the structure of it, you get into the, the planning, the organization of it, you start paying it off each month, you chip away at it, and eventually you know in your mind, I'm going to pay this off, or maybe I'll refinance uh, after 15, you know, I refinance to a 15-year loan and drop it down a little bit. But we'll chip away at it. I was looking at my, um, you know, amortization schedule, and I was like, oh, after 342 more payments, <laughs> this loan will be paid off. Uh, <laughs> but it's not insurmountable. I mean, that's like, that's why you have the schedule. Okay, you can look at it, plan ahead, all of that. This debt of sin that we owe is impossible to pay off, my friends. Impossible. It would take an eternity to pay it off. It does take an eternity to pay. God's costly forgiveness. That's why his forgiveness is so costly because of the impossible debt that we have created and we owe the living creator God. I think that's why the word forgive has the word give in it because God has to give so much of himself through his son Jesus to pay off that debt. It's incredible. God's costly forgiveness. The thing about God's forgiveness here in this story and in all of Scripture is that it ought to lead you to repentance. Look at what Jesus says here. He says, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, the woman isn't doing this in order to get forgiveness. Otherwise, that would be religion. That would be legalism. The woman is doing this because she believes that Jesus has forgiven her. Because look what he says here. He who is forgiven little loves little. He or she who believes that they are forgiven little will love little. Her love, her repentance that is driving this flows out of what she believes about Jesus' forgiveness of her. You see how that works? The forgiveness always comes first, okay? And then the repentance and the change. When you repent, you are not asking for forgiveness from God again. If you have already repented of your sin to become a Christian, you are asking God, God, I want that forgiveness, okay? If that one time you repented and you believe the gospel, you're asking God for that goodness. But ongoing repentance in your life and confession of sin, you're not asking for that forgiveness again. 
you are asking for God, help me to understand and realize the depths of your costly forgiveness so that I can see my own sin for what it really is. Do you see that? It is good and right to be sorry for your sin when you're confessing it. But you don't need to keep asking God for forgiveness all over again. He's already completely forgiven you at the cross. His atonement is final, past, present, and future. So when you are confessing and repenting, you're saying, God, help me to see your costly forgiveness for what it is. That God, similar to this moneylender, absorbed all that cost unto himself when he paid your debt of sin through Jesus. You are saying, Jesus, our God, I need to know more and more. Help me believe more fully the good news of the gospel of what you've already done for me, complete and final, so that I can move forward in repentance. Paul says in Romans 2, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's grace and his mercy and forgiveness always comes to you first. You don't go to God first. He comes to you first, and then you respond. His forgiveness leads you and empowers you to repentance. The more you grasp how deep God's costly forgiveness of your sin is in and through Jesus, the more you'll begin to see how sinful you really are, how deep it goes. It goes greater than the surface. It's more than just the lifestyle that you live. It's more than just your actions. It begins in the heart and how deep your repentance must be and will be. And in this repentance, the more you'll pursue authentic critique of yourself inside and out, you'll peel back more layers of sin and brokenness in the ways that you do not trust the creator of the universe. Okay? So what keeps us from repentance? We don't see our sin for what it really is. It tends to be on the surface level. What leads us and empowers us to repentance? God's costly forgiveness. And what happens then when we do repent? We have a transformed life that's displayed in bold, radical, generous worship. Look at what the woman does here. Jesus says, he turns towards Simon and he says, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. I love the way that Luke writes this scene. It's so vivid and striking in its detail. And he mentions it two times to ensure we don't miss it. So what's going on here? Look at the way that her life is transformed. Now, again, she's a woman that's not named. She was called. She was placed in the category of sinner from the city. It doesn't specifically say, my guess and part of my assumption of her is that her sin was probably sexual in nature. Typically, in the Bible, if a woman was called a sinner, it probably had to do with something with sex. So what we see here is that her physical attributes here, hair, lips, the, perf- the perfume, the ointment, all of that, uh, that once was used to seduce men and cause them to sin is now transformed unto worship of Jesus. Whatever that was, whatever the sin was, we do know that she believed that Jesus' forgiveness of her was profound and deep and it took away her shame and it brought her into relationship with the living God, granting her new life. Do you see the life transformation here? Secondly, out of that, the bold, radical, generous worship. So look at how this 
we see this scene playing out that Luke writes. First of all, she's bold. She just comes in and she crashes the dinner party that Jesus is at. That's why I like to call this sermon the story of the woman who crashed the dinner party. She comes in, she barges in uninvited, uninhibited, unannounced, cuts through all of the pretense of this social scene to worship Jesus in this way. I, we, we, don't, um, we don't wash people's feet as hosts here in our culture and our time, but something I think we do is maybe in a, as a way to appreciate a host or serve them in some ways, we clean up for them. Maybe we clean up after dinner or we, we help them in some way. So if you can imagine that you went to the trouble to put on and host a dinner party, and it's really nice, and, I mean, you, 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 have, you, have, you have spent some money on this, right? You get a nice charcuterie board. <laughs> and you've got some nice drinks to start out the dinner, and then you've got, like, this great four-star entree. And you're having a great time. The conversation is lively, the mood and the ambiance is perfect, and then all of a sudden, this person, this stranger or sort of quasi-stranger that maybe you've heard of but you know, don't know and you've never met just totally walks into your home, just, just like walks in, doesn't even, doesn't even knock or ring the doorbell. They just walk in, and they walk right past you, and they go straight for your bathroom. They start cleaning your toilets, and then they move from there to the kitchen. All the while, like, you're enjoying this dinner. I mean, like, okay, awkward. (laughs) But that's how radical this is for this woman. I mean, she just shows up because of what she believes about Jesus' forgiveness, because of her worship, because of her love, because of her gratitude and her thankfulness. It's just, it's, it's incredible. And if you can also imagine with me, now, here's something. I'm going to get down on the ground here. Maybe, hopefully, some of you can see this. But in the first century, they didn't have chairs and tables like we have. What they would do is when they eat, when they're at a meal, they have cushions on the ground, and then they have like a mat that sort of acts as a table for the food to go on. And they would just sit like this. They would recline at the table like this, just on a cushion. They might even lay down a little bit like this. And they'd have the other hand for like grabbing some food. And this is how they would just talk and and eat. So Jesus' feet are behind him. And that's why the story says that the woman comes behind behind Jesus and his feet and starts kissing him and lathering him with the ointment and the perfume and everything and her hair. And if you can imagine, though, his feet are on the ground. Okay, his feet are on the ground like this. So she has to get down and get low to the ground. She doesn't have a basin for, for with water or soap or anything. To, she can just take this in a rag and do it right here. She is getting low to the ground and she is kissing his feet relentlessly, ceaselessly. And she's using her very hair to wash his feet because maybe she didn't have a rag. And she is using her own um, expensive ointment on his feet. But, but friends, imagine the vulnerability and the humility of her like this low to the ground. Radical. I mean, who does this? Who worships in that way, in our culturally appropriate ways, but in such humility, in such radicalness, in such generosity? 
as this woman. This is the kind of transformation that can happen with forgiveness. Because of God's costly forgiveness of her sin and her faith in that, her life is utterly transformed and she worships radically because she believes she's already forgiven deeply from her sin. Look, I look at this story and I see the deep change of this woman and her transformation and the depth of her repentance and her worship. And I'm like, man, (laughs) this is so beautiful. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know. I'm not sure I'm ready for that. I'm not sure if I'm ready for that kind of humility and that kind of life. But I want it. I want it. And I want this to be true. And I know it's true. And it sounds amazing and it sounds sounds liberating. You see, when Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven... And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? He says to the women, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. When he says that, anytime Jesus says your sins are forgiven in the New Testament, he is, an, he is anticipating and looking forward to the cross. He is looking ahead to and anticipating the crucifixion, his own crucifixion. That's the only way that he can declare someone's sins are forgiven. Because he knows that he is going to have to pay for her very sins, also Simon's, even though he doesn't see it. He's going to have to pay for them on the cross and die. His blood, his life for them. Anytime you see that Jesus says someone's sins are forgiven in the New Testament, you have to think the cross. And he's not just declaring it, pulling out of thin air. There is a cost there. Every time someone's sin and debt, my sin your sin that Jesus is going to pay. The deep cost of God's forgiveness of our sin. The gospel of God's forgiveness of you in Jesus makes possible and makes fully real in your life the the removal of your shame and guilt just like it did for this woman. Friends, even if you're here today and you don't know about this and and you're not a believer and you don't know if you can fully wrap your mind around the logic and the historical nature of Jesus' death and resurrection on behalf of all humanity. Even if you're not sure, even if you can't get there yet in your mind, you at least want this to be true. You at least want this to be real. Because it's the only hope for real change and transformation in your life, in the life of people around you, and in this world, that God, the creator of all of this, would take it upon himself to take on the great cost of our sin and our debt and all of our wrongdoing and all of our unbelief and idolatry and take it upon himself in the form of Jesus. That he would do that. And when you see that, when you see it, it will compel you. There will be something in you that compels you to change. There's something in you that compels you like, I'm tired of living like this. I don't want to live with this brokenness anymore. I want change. I want life to be better. And in God, it's always better. This is the only way. Even if you are still in a place where like, I just don't know all this Christian stuff and I just don't know about the stuff of Jesus and the miracles and all of that, you know you want this to be true. 
because it means the only lasting hope for change and healing from your brokenness and your sin and those around you. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to, um, I'm going to like to have the, the band come up and lead us in worship. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this story of this woman. Thank you for what we learn here about sin, about our sin, and about your costly forgiveness. Jesus, thank you that, you're the, that, that your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy came first. Thank you that we have every opportunity, we have every chance to repent, to pursue change, to see our lives transformed. Jesus, thank you for your grace and your mercy that even in the moments of everyday life where we're just, we're, we are bogged down with whatever's going on and it's almost like we have such a small ounce of faith. Thank you that your grace is sufficient, that your love is eternal. <laughs> thank you for that. Thank you that you come to see us change and transform to be resurrected from the inside out. We praise you this morning, Jesus, for the good news. Amen. As we sing this song, um, we're going we're gonna to take communion. John will come up after the song, but please come forward to the table and um, get the elements, get the, um, the cup and the bread. Um, if you are not yet a believer, I ask that you just watch and observe. But if you are at a point where you're like, I want to believe, I'm, and I believe this, and I see how amazing and great God's forgiveness is, and I see how good Jesus is, then I encourage you to partake and celebrate. I encourage you to pray and talk to God, and then talk to, talk, talk to one of us here about that, okay? So go ahead during this song, go ahead and come forward to the, there's a table in the back, and then we've got this one right here, okay? And we're going to continue to celebrate. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.